0: Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. To we hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, what we're doing tonight is we're finishing kind of an introductory series for RUF. Um, the first three weeks, we kind of looked at three words, uh, uh, and we're at the third word. The first week was to believe. And we talked about how everyone has a belief. Your belief is the story that you place your life into. Um, That's your belief system. And to believe in Jesus is actually to place your life into the context of His redemptive story. The second week, David Jones talked about belonging. Who are your people? We all need a story. We all need a people friends are a group of people that are gathered around something friends form around a common interest a common personality a common location a common uh, socio-economic or educational class friendships always around something and whatever the friendship gathers around whatever that density at the center is that also shapes the character of the people in that group how they treat each other and people outside of that group so that what that what i mean by that is when you join the band you end up acting more bandy have you noticed this when you came to Stanford, believe it or not, you're going to go home in the spring and you're going to, your friends are going to tell you you act more Stanfordy. y uh, When you sign on with Bain Consulting, you act more Baney for better or for worse. But whatever group gathers around actually affects the character and shapes the people around it uh, that it's gathered around. Um, and what we believe and what Scripture teaches is that the only community that actually can bring healing into the lives of the people in it and into the world around it is a community that gathers around grace. And that's what God's community is intended to be. That's what the church is intended to be. And Lord willing, RUF has an expression of that on campus. To believe, what's your story, to belong, what is your people, and who are they, what are they gathered around. And then tonight is bless. And the, reason, the word bless gets at what are you to do. And I mean this in very concrete, practical terms. You have to make decisions tomorrow about what you do. And I want to suggest that this word gives us direction into thinking about what are you supposed to do tonight, tomorrow, uh, with your time, with your energy, with your resources. So we're going to read from 1 John uh, a couple of verses, and then we're going to talk about that. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Jesus, as we consider your word, as we consider this idea of love, of the calling uh, to love our neighbor, to love you, um, this idea goes against everything in our hearts. It is frustrating to even sit and talk about it because it's a great ideal, but it's impossible to reach. And so what we need is we need you to open up our hearts to the possibility of living into what you have called us to do. So be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. So this is a true story from this book I read this summer called Give and Take. It's written by Adam Grant. He's a professor at Wharton Business School. And when I read the first page of this story, this is the story on the first page. I knew I was going to connect with it because this is how the book starts. On a Saturday afternoon at a 12-year-old girl's soccer field in Silicon Valley. If you know me, I have two 12-year-old girls. I spend a crazy amount of time on soccer fields in Silicon Valley. And that's how the first sentence of this book starts. And I'm like, this book completely understands me and I connect with it. (laughs) This is what happened. True story. This was now about eight or nine years ago. Uh, 12-year-old girl's soccer game in Palo Alto. One dad, a venture capitalist named David Hornick. You can Google him. He's a real person. Uh, met an on- he's a venture capitalist. Met an entrepreneur dad, Danny Shader. Real person. You can Google him. And Shader had a not- still has a notable history of success as an entrepreneur. He's been involved in a lot of very prominent, um, successful projects. And when he met Hornick, he, knowing Hornick was a venture capitalist, he said, Hey, I've got an idea. I'd like to pitch it to you. He gave him his two-minute pitch on the soccer field. Hornick said, listen, this sounds awesome. I want you to come to my office next week and give me the full pitch. Shader came to the office the following week. Hornick loved it, offered him a term sheet. That's what a venture capitalist offers to an entrepreneur. says, I want in. I want to invest in your company. I want to own part of your company. I want you to develop this idea. I want to give you counsel and everything, resource I can give you to be successful. But before you accept my investment, here's what I want you to do. Go to other venture capitalists. Make your pitch so that when you choose me, if you do choose me, you're making the best decision for you. And if someone offers you something better, go with them. Uh, Hornick knew what he wanted for himself. Hornick has been very successful as a venture capitalist. Uh, He knew that Shader's company was going to be a home run. But what he did is he put Shader's interest ahead of his own. He said, go and make sure you're getting the best deal possible. And if it's not me, go with someone else. Um, Shader ended up going with another investor. When he met with other venture capitalists, they were all far more aggressive than Hornick to get his business. They're very, very aggressive. And his instinct was, I've got to go with the aggressive investors, right? They're bought in. They're so ingre- aggressive. Um, So he signed essentially the exact same term sheet that Hornick offered, but with another investor. And this is what Shader said. He said over the next couple of weeks, something gnawed on him. He said that part of him realized that he might be missing something by not working with an investor like Hornick. So he went back to Hornick, secured an investment from Hornick, invited him in, invited him on the board, and the startup is called Pay Near Me. It's now taken off. It's raised over $102 million dollars. The reason that Shader brought Hornick back in is because there was something distinctively appealing about an investor who said, my job is about setting you up for success, whether or not, it costs, whether or not I become successful in the process. He saw an investor who set his interest above his own. Not only has that business taken off pay near me, Uh, But actually, the interaction with Shader and Hornick, they've become close friends. Shader's brought other entrepreneurs and other startups to Hornick. And now deals upon deals have been made and other new businesses have been started. What Adam Grant calls Hornick is he calls him a giver. And he says, you almost can never find any of these people in business. Because the normal posture that we all have is that of a taker. And here's how Grant describes a giver. He says, they like to get more than they, or sorry, this is how Grant describes a taker. A taker likes to get more than give. They tilt reciprocity in their favor. They put their interests ahead of others. They believe the world is mainly competitive and that to succeed, you need to do better than others. To prove themselves, they need to self promote, make sure they always get credit. He says, here's the thing garden variety takers are not cruel and they're not cutthroat. They're just cautious and self protective, thinking, I need to look out for myself. Hornick, on the other hand, is a giver. This is how Grant describes givers. They're very, very, very rare. They tilt reciprocity in the favor of other people, they prefer to give more than they take. Instead of being self focused and evaluating what people can offer them, a giver pays attention to what they can do for others. Here's the last word, talking about that. A taker will always help strategically when helping others helps you more than it costs you. Givers, on the other hand, have a totally different cost-benefit analysis. You help others when the benefit to others exceeds your personal cost. I tell that story, tonight is not about being a successful venture capitalist, I'm sure some of y'all wish it was, some of y'all probably got really excited, sorry, I'm not the person for that. We're going to talk about what it means to be human. This is about asking the deeper question, not what am I supposed to do, which is the question we're all obsessed with, but what I want to contend is a far more important question, which is what am I supposed to be? Because we think the question, what am I supposed to do, right? This purpose question, we think about it in vocational terms, right? What is a major I'm supposed to do? What internships should I seek? What am I supposed to do? Consulting, help the third world, whatever. Where am I supposed to live? We think about happiness in terms of circumstances, right? How do I get the life that I want? Get accepted by certain people, get a boyfriend or girlfriend, live where I want to live. How do I... Happiness is about acquiring an ideal set of circumstances, and getting rid of less than ideal circumstances, right? I want to suggest that the question, what am I supposed to do, is not very important. It's of somewhat importance, but not much. It's far less important than the question, what am I supposed to be? And it's actually, what kind of person am I supposed to be, and whatever circumstances I find myself. And here's what you're going to find. Many of you have experienced this already. Your circumstances can and will shift really radically at different points in your life. And if you define yourself by what you should do, you're going to find out that you can't do what you think you should do very long at all. And a far more practical question for surviving life and being happy is not, what do I need to do? It is, who am I supposed to be? David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times. He wrote an article in 2012 called The Service Patch. It's amazing. You should go read it. Here's a quote from it. He says, In whatever field you go into, whatever field, you're going to face greed, you're going to face frustration, you're going to face failure. You may find your life challenged by depression, alcoholism, infidelity, your own stupidity, self-indulgence. So how are you supposed to structure your soul to prepare for this? Simply working at Amnesty International instead of McKinsey is not necessarily going to help you. When he read for this article an undergrad discussion thread by a Stanford poli-sci professor, this is what he said, I saw young people that had deep moral yearnings, but they tended to convert moral questions into resource allocation questions. They converted questions of how to be into questions about what to do. And this is his final note. It's worth noting that you can devote your entire life to community service and be a total schmuck. And you can spend your life on Wall Street and be a hero. Understanding heroism and schmuckdom requires fewer Excel spreadsheets and more Dostoevsky and the Book of Job. Here's what I want to say Happiness is not the result of the right circumstances. That's the lie all of us believe. Happiness doesn't come from acquiring the right circumstances and eschewing the ones that don't advance your personal agenda for success. Happiness is actually the byproduct of no longer aiming for your personal happiness. Happiness is actually the byproduct of beginning to see that God made you in His image. And that means that to be human, you're called to image God, to represent Him, to be like He is to the world. And so that we can understand what he's like, he actually sent his son Jesus that Paul calls in the book of Colossians the exact representation of God in human form. In him the fullness of God is present. And so we look at Jesus in order to stand to understand who we are meant to be. And what we see in Jesus is a giver and not a taker. We see someone who thinks that the reason other people exist is so that they can be the objects of your love. So that you can build them up, invest in their flourishing, not so that we can use each other to make me happy. We see somebody in Jesus who sees his vocation is not about self-fulfillment. His vocation is about serving others. We see that somebody who, when he thinks about passion, passion is not about discovering and honing his skills and deploying them in a job he loves. His passion is the well being of others. And so, what I want to talk about in in really brief terms is a new principle for living, a new way of being that we're called to in Jesus, and then the power to do it. A new principle and a new power. And the new principle is what I said you're made to be like Jesus. It's really frustrating. Understand that. Maybe you don't like that language. You are made to be a giver, to give yourself in love. And love is not a sentiment. Love is not something that is just a warm fuzzy. Love is not uh, uh, conveyed through posting warm sentiments on social media or linking an article. That's not what love is. Love modeled in Christ is investing your life into the flourishing of others. Christ-shaped love is investing your life into the flourishing of others. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean investing leftover time, right? Ah, I finished my goals, now I've got some leftover time. It doesn't mean investing our leftover money. It doesn't mean investing our downtime. It doesn't mean limiting our exposure to risk or volunteering periodically. That's not what love is. It means investing the totality of our lives into the flourishing of others, my favorite, 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 favorite author, my soulmate, is this guy named Chuck Klosterman. Has anybody heard of Chuck Klosterman? Yeah, I need to read Chuck Klosterman. He's amazing. <laughs> he did this interview this summer with a comedian I love, a guy named Mark Marin. It's about an hour and a half long interview, and they get into very personal moments in this interview. Klosterman's not a Christian. He writes about culture, rock music, sports, all this stuff, but in amazing ways. And at one point in the interview, they're talking about these kind of early middle-aged and late middle-aged men and they're talking about the possibility of being happy. This is what Klosterman says. He said, he has two kids at this point that are very young, um, four and two, I think. And he says, I am so, so happy being a father. And he says, I'm actually embarrassed that I experienced all the cliched ways fathers talk about happiness. Like, I'm embarrassed that I, all the cliches make sense and I use them now. And he said, this is what I always thought. I always assumed parents were kind of lying when they talked about how happy being a parent can make you. Here's his next thought on it. Here's the main thing becoming a parent does to you. It makes you, it forces you to think about yourself less. And this is what he said. He said, I think about how I feel about myself, and I think about how I feel about things way less than ever did. And I'm beginning to accept that maybe this is the key to being happy, thinking about yourself as little as possible, which is counterintuitive to everything I had ever thought. I think close to men is tapping into how God designed us to be happy. And I don't think you have to be a parent to discover this. The new principle is this. You're called, you actually find fulfillment. You will find happiness if your life is invested in the flourishing of others. That's what love is. Here's what that means. It means friendship takes on a totally different posture in your life. It's a totally different idea. Right now, when we think friendship is, I need to find people who make me feel less lonely. That's how we think of friendship. How does Jesus think about friendship? He washes his friend's feet. He says, the purpose of friendship is for me to serve you. He gives us the model of friendship. Right? Right? How often do we see roommates, and do we see friends as inconvenience or an irritation instead of the main reason they're in your life is actually for you to love them and to seek their flourishing? How often do we try to get out of helping people, even friends, unless it's just really convenient? How often do we break our word to protect our own interests instead of keep our words to protect their interests? Right. This is a totally different way of thinking about being a friend. This is a totally different way of thinking about work. What if work... What if private equity, what if startups, what if teaching, what if nonprofit work was not about achievement? What if it wasn't even about experiencing reward, but it was actually an earnest desire to build structures and businesses and financial tools and engage in scholarship in order to build a more just and peaceful and equitable world? What if that was your goal? What if recognition, ascending, power, security, those were not your goals? What if your only goal in your work was to help? You could still be in private equity. You could also fight human trafficking. You could be a consultant, but you'd be a very different kind of person and do it a different way. changes radically how we relate to work. It changes radically how we relate to sexuality. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, you need to understand in the Christian view of sexuality, your body is not your own. It's for your spouse. It's theirs. They have a claim over it. They have the claim over it. Sexuality in the Christian conception is the act of self-giving. The joy, the height of the joy of sexuality is actually not your orgasm, it's actually the act of seeking the pleasure of the other and meeting that physical pleasure of oneness with the spiritual and social and psychological pleasure of oneness that is the covenant of marriage. Sex is actually the physical complement to saying, I'm yours and you're mine always and forever. We are one. And you're not giving yourself to a lover unless you're also giving them your future. That's why it's bound up in covenant. This is why pornography is so disastrous is because it's actually sex defrauded from its chief purpose. Its its chief purpose is to bring pleasure to another. But the more you engage in pornography, the more you're conditioned to think sexual pleasure is fundamentally selfish. Right? Completely changes sexuality, completely changes... How about this one? It completely changes how to be an enemy. Romans 12, Do not be overcome by evil, overcome evil with good. In Jeremiah 29, The prophet addresses the Jewish people while they are in exile, exiled by their enemies in Babylon. Here's what the prophet says. Seek the welfare of the city you are exiled to, and seeking their welfare you will find your own. If you have trouble with things in Scripture, which there are things that are troubling, that Jesus says, that the Bible says, I would encourage you first and foremost... To deal with the most, what I think is easily the most offensive thing the Bible says, which is love your enemies. But there's no more countercultural or counterintuitive command given in Scripture. The one common ground that all of humanity has. Everybody on every end of the political spectrum, every end of the religious spectrum, every end of the socioeconomic spectrum, the protest spectrum, whatever end, here's what we all agreed to, hate your enemies. We have common ground there. We all react the same way to the idea of enemies. But the way of Jesus is radically opposite. He's saying justice and peace and joy are not ushered into the world when your agenda wins out over your enemies. They're ushered into the world when you love your enemy back. In the face of their hostility. And that's precisely what Jesus does for us. It's a new way to relate to our body, to our money, to our time, to recreation, to weekends, to art, to protest, to politics. It applies to every area of life you will live in tomorrow. You were made to invest your life into the flourishing of others. Jesus summarizes the law, the way God designed us to live. By saying, here's what it means to be human. Love God and love the people around you. John refuses to allow us to separate those two things. To love others is to be in God's love, is what he says here. And to reflect God's love and to love God means you love others. Now, here's the, here's the second point, a little bit shorter. How do we do that? And here, if, if in your mind right now, you're like, that's a manageable shift, like I can tweak some things and I think I can figure that out, then either I didn't communicate well, you didn't understand what I said, or you're actually lying to yourself about how selfish you really are. It's one of those three options. And what John offers all through his letter, but what scripture offers all over the place, is one tool for the power to begin to live that way. You can only live this way if you've been loved this way. Earlier in his letter, John makes this point. The only way to live this way, this is love that he first loved us. We are responders to God's love. Living this way is a response to him. We're mirrors of the glory of His love. That means His love has to shine on us in order for us to reflect it to others. You can only love free from self-concern. It feels impossible, right? It does, because it is, because we can't do it on our own. Willpower won't get you there. You know what this room has a ton in it? A ton of willpower. We don't need more willpower. Y'all might have too much. You might need to dial it back a little bit. (laughs) But that's what we all think. I'm going to have some willpower to do this. No, 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 no. We have to be changed. We actually need freedom, not willpower. We need to be free from self-obsession and self-absorption. You can only be this kind of grace to enemies. You can only be this kind of love to your workplace, to your roommate, if you've been the recipient of transforming grace. We love because He first loved us. And if you confuse the order of that sentence, that if you think, I try to love so that He will love me, you completely subvert and destroy what Jesus intends to do in your life, and you will have removed grace from the equation. Because it's only the presence of unconditionally given free love that your life can then produce this kind of love. Jesus says it all kinds of ways, all throughout his ministry. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, then you will bear fruit. This way of living is is so against every instinct we have that the only way to do it is to be vitally connected to the one who loves you this way. Jesus is like, he's saying, I'm like a vine, and if you're connected to me like a branch, only then can you bear fruit, which is one of the words he uses for this kind of life. John 7, he says, I am living water, and if you drink of me, you will become a fountain of overflowing water into the lives of others. The image is that you can only become someone whose entire life is defined by overflowing blessing in others' lives if something is filling you up with that kind of grace. Writer of Proverbs says this in Proverbs 4, watch your heart with vigilance because everything you do flows from your heart. He's making the same point. That the way you live is shaped and determined by the thing that is filling up your heart. So if your heart is a big, a big mess of need for self-validation and anger and insecurity and anxiety and arrogance and need to make me happy, then that's going to determine how you are in this world. On the other hand, if your heart is filled up with the gracious love of God and Christ, then that's going to begin to determine the kind of person you are, and it's going to look really different. Two questions to close. First question, what if I'm not good at that? I don't, I, y'all are Stanford students, y'all are good at everything. Some of us didn't go to Stanford. We're like, well, what if I'm not like, amazing at everything I do? But maybe you're one of those, maybe you have some humility and ask that question too. What if I'm not good at it? What if I mess this up? And this is, that's a, you got to ask that question every day. Asking that question is awesome. Because God has accounted for that in the economy of Grace. Because when you begin or end a day or begin or end a moment or a season or a week and realize God called me to love Him and love others, that's what I was supposed to be today. But I didn't. I used others and I used my time and I used my resources to love me and seek my own interests. In every other setting, when you fail to meet the performance standards, you're out. Right? When you fail the prime directive too many times or too drastically, you're out. God's goodness is so good that He even takes our failure and uses it to establish His love more deeply in your hearts. So you don't hide or justify or try to compensate for your failure. You actually bring it to the cross in order to rediscover again, Jesus has paid the price. You're forgiven. God's mercy is new again. He doesn't begrudge you. He actually wins our hearts over a little bit more than the last time because in spite of our failure to love well, He still forgives In spite of our failure to love well the hundredth time or the thousandth time or the ten thousandth time, His intention is that you come back to the cross and discover again. He forgives. Jesus has paid the price. No debt is owed. Christ's sacrificial love displayed in His dying for our failure compels us to live not for ourselves but for Him. In the economy of grace, this is what's awesome. Jesus will even use our failure to further win our hearts to Him and conform us to His image. So what if I mess up? What if I'm not good at it? Go back to Christ. Hear the good verdict again. See that the cross is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for you. Last question. Okay, what should I do tomorrow? Hebrews 12.2 says this. Uh, a biblical word for just going through life as a running or walking. The writer of Hebrews says this, to run well, to live well Tomorrow with this new principle, loving others and loving God, instead of seeking your own interest, to be a giver and not a taker, Um, this is what you're called to do. Run well by keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of your faith, who because of the joy that he anticipated, endured the sacrificial love of the cross, not caring about the shame of it, and he is now seated with God. Tomorrow you will have your mind's eye, or your heart, whatever you want to call it, fixated on something. Your goal, your hope, your shame, your anger, your ideal. And it's that thing that your mind's eye is fixated on that will fill your heart and will drive you tomorrow and determine who you are. Fix your mind's eye on Jesus, your eyes on Him, His love for you in that manner. Here, Don't do this. Don't fix your eyes on how well you're fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's what some of you want to do. Fix your eyes on Christ. And you might think, I don't know how that helps me tomorrow. I don't know how that helps me today. It absolutely does. It's like this. So I'm an Eagle Scout. Thought we should bring that up. Um, I didn't get in Stanford, y'all, but come on. It's not bad. Um, We did these compass courses all the time in scouting. And if you've ever done a compass course, they teach you a way to follow a heading, and it's not what you initially think. You don't do this. You don't hold the compass, point it at 85 degrees or whatever it says, and walk that way, right? Seems like that's what you're supposed to do. It's not true. You don't look at the compass at 85 degrees and walk. What happens is if you do that, then as you negotiate the obstacles in front of you, walking over a course around trees, boulders, creeks, whatever it is, the circumstances around you constantly change your trajectory and you never end up in the appropriate place. Instead, the way you follow a compass heading is you look at the compass, you look for 85 degrees, and you pick a landmark on the distant horizon that doesn't move, a mountaintop or a tree hundreds of yards off. And what you do is you look at that and you walk. You still have to encounter all the obstacles, the daily mundane stuff, but you do it and you always end up in the place you're intended to go. You can't make it by doing this and managing the things around you. But you go through the exact same obstacles and circumstances, but your eyes fixed ahead. If you want to be happy, if you want to live with the purpose that you are designed to have, if you want to have joy and fullness of being human... Set your eyes on Christ tomorrow. Walk through the day that way, and only then are you going to begin to become a giver instead of a taker. That's what you were called to be. Let's pray.